When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, are you ready for some money rehab? Wall Street has been completely upended by an unlikely player, GameStop. And should I have a 401k? Because you I don't never... do it? No, I never. Girl. You think the whole world revolves around you and your money? Well, it doesn't. Charge for wasting our time. I will take a check. You recognize her from anchoring on CNN, CNBC, and Bloomberg. The only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. The cold lapin. Have you ever wondered just how much money your favorite artist is getting from your listening to their song on repeat? Today, we're talking all about the monetization of music with Troy Carter. From his work at Adam Factory to Spotify, and now as the CEO of the technology and media company Venice Music Collective, Troy is an expert on the biz. Plus, not only can Troy pick artists to invest in, he also has an awesome eye for emerging companies. So I wanted to ask him about his work as an angel investor and what lessons he's learned that we can apply to our own investments. Let's get started. Troy, welcome to Money Rehab. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. You are a music industry king and queen maker. Uh, your latest contribution to the business is your company, Venice Music. Can you explain what that company does and how it's different from other players in the space for those who don't know? Yeah, we're um, we're a community and distribution company for, uh, for independent music artists. You know, um, I spent a lot of my career sort of focused around um, major label artists and this cross section between music and technology and saw this gap in the independent market where it was kind of being underserved and um, underappreciated and undercompensated and decided to try to try to do something about it. And let's take a step back uh, for listeners who might not know much about the music industry. You've been part of the music industry during the streaming revolution. Uh, for those outside the biz, can you explain how monetization worked in the pre-streaming area for both artists and labels, I suppose, and then how it works now? Not to take you too far back, but you know, the music industry um, has always been impacted by uh, technological changes, for better or worse, by the way. You know, so um, some technology that's come in has driven um, massive amount of audience and revenue. And then other technology has like, e you know, evaporated value. And so, you know, when we look at the CD era, when, when people were collecting CDs, there was a lot of money made basically from um, people Re reorganizing their collections. So people were going from like vinyl and cassettes to CDs, which had a much better quality of, of, of sound. And, um, and so people were switching over their entire collection. So the music industry saw a windfall of cash from it. Um, 
the right after that, we got introduced to file sharing, which was Napster that evaporated all of that value that that was gained. And the music industry had to find new ways of, of, of making money. And um, so the download was introduced essentially made mainstream by Apple with iTunes and people got paid 99 cents or $1.29 per song, which broke up the album, but it was like 99, 99 cents per song on average. And, um, and then it's flipped over to streaming where it was much better for the consumer because it's basically all, all you can eat for a monthly price. So if people only bought two albums a year, that probably would average out to, you know, $20 spent on music on two albums versus, you know, $10 a month, essentially for all of the music that they, they can listen to. So it sounds like a couple steps forward a couple steps back and then a few more steps forward in the monetization. That's, that's, that's how it happens, you know, but, you know, throughout that process, um, artists have never just generally speaking, been able to capture the value as things changed and progressed. And, um, and so most of the record deals stayed essentially the same where, you know, um, on average artists would get 20% record labels would get 80%. And um, any monies given up front to artists would have to be recouped back before they could make any money. And these deals typically lasted, you know, seven, 10 years and even longer at times. So, you know, I think we've starting to shift to a place where artists are having more ownership and being able to capture more financial value from, from the work that they're doing. Is the most lucrative part of the industry actually the music or is it the ancillary profit from stuff like merch or touring? Yeah, music itself is usually the the driver for the rest of an artist's business. But, you know, what we see a lot of times is um, music sells everything but music a lot of times. So so you'll see people do 75 percent of their revenue on tour for certain artists. Um, but now with streaming, what we've seen is an, an artist like a Drake who doesn't tour a lot makes, you know, an incredible amount of revenue, or at least his record label does from, um, from his streaming numbers. And the same with like an Ed Sheeran or an Ariana Grande. So there are artists within a streaming age that can generate a ton of money. The, the question then becomes, do, are they actually receiving that money themselves? And if not, they got to go out on tour and make that money. Or where do they get screwed? We just did an episode on Megan the Stallion, uh, who's awesome. Uh, and of course, all of her woes with her contract. Where do you see issues with new artists signing these deals? You know, a, a lot of times it's, it's, it's a leverage thing. So, you know, you have um, somebody that's willing to take a, a chance on a, on a young artist and um, and with them taking that chance, you know, it's almost like um, a hard money loan, essentially, you know, when you look at some of the terms that show up in a lot of those deals. And, um, and so artists don't have a lot of leverage in the beginning. They, they, a lot of them don't have, you know, money to, or or anything like that or whatever. And they've always wanted a record deal. So they sign what's ever in front of them, not really planning for long-term future. And um, so we see, you know, these deals, you know, as a manager over the years, I would see them all the time. And, you know, our jobs would be to go back in and, you know, get as much leverage as we can get and then renegotiate those deals. I've heard that music labels are pushing artists to create music that's tick 
TikTokable, I guess. Is that true? Does TikTok actually move the needle for music popularity? Have you seen? TikTok is huge for music popularity. You know, um, I'm a firm believer in the, in the art and the music actually comes first. And, you know, and when you look at great songs, uh, great songs, they don't matter. They transcend platforms. So it could be TikTok today. It could be another platform tomorrow. Or MySpace of yesterday. Yeah, exactly. They, these The platforms to me become fungible in, in, in the end. The content and the artists are the one thing that remains consistent. With that being said, you know, TikTok has become such a firepower in terms of uh, virality by way of the, the how the algorithm works. And we're seeing this direct correlation between virality on TikTok and streams on on Spotify or Apple Music. So, you know, we know that that combination works. I wonder how these conversations go when you're listening to these new tracks. Like, can you what <laughs> I'm terrible at the TikTok um, to decide whether it's TikTokable? Yeah, you know, um, it, 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 it depends Think about it through the lens of like of of context. So songs usually go viral um, or have big moments when there's some sort of um, emotional context, whether, whether that emotional um, uh, emotional context is laughter, whether it's sadness, whether you could connect with somebody's story. So to me, like it's no different than, you know, the Kate Bush running up that hill record being synced and Stranger Things. And like so people have a different context to that record that's been around for decades that now makes it a hit today. So I think it's just a contextualization versus the song itself sounding like something that could work on TikTok. I think it's what's the context of that song, because it could be a lyric. It could be, you know, a, 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 a needle drop, you know, somewhere in the record. So it could be all of these different things. Yeah. Or what's happening in the zeitgeist or in the world, which you can't really predict. And that's kind of this perfect storm in this era, though, of social media and the interwebs, uh, where artists can basically just release their own music more easily than ever before. What do you see as the role of music labels? You know, they the music labels, they have a, is a very, very high level of expertise um, to take things from, um, let's say, if an artist can get it to one to seven themselves, some of the really good major labels are able to take it to seven to 10 and make these global superstars. So, you know, so, the, so the, I don't take the infrastructure and the experience of people within these labels for granted, because I've worked with some of the best people in the world who have been experts, you know, and whether it's publicity, whether it's radio promotions, you know, whether it's uh, music video creation. So there's something to be said about that level of expertise the problem that comes in, though, is that there's not enough time in the day now for labels to invest that across a wide um, roster that they've been signing. So a lot of these artists are kind of left to themselves to figure out how to become superstars. And then the ones that do become superstars, um, the economics re remain lopsided. So Yes, they should be compensated for their investment that they make when nobody else believes. Um, yes, they, sh they should be compensated when, um, when they've given advances that haven't been recouped. But once they get the windfall and labels make, you know, a ton of money 
the economics should then shift, you know, way to the artist's favor at that point. So it's just kind of figuring out, you know, um, what the value exchange looks like, because it's not that they don't add value, it's whether or not they're worth the value that they're that they end up receiving in the end. Hold on to your wallets, boys and girls. Money Rehab will be right back. Now for some more money rehab. We had Skylar Gray on the show, too, and, you know, she made headlines for selling her catalog. Do you see this as something new in the music business and economics behind it? Or is it just something we're hearing more about? You know, I think it's I think it's new in a sense of the the mentality has changed. It used to be taboo for um, artists to sell their catalogs, you know, songwriters to sell their catalogs. It just was like very, very taboo. And so a lot of great artists, you know, they ended up dying and passing the catalogs onto their children and things along those lines. And I think um, over the past, I would say six years or so, you saw this trend of, um, of iconic artists who were older that were willing to part ways, you know, whether it was for tax planning purposes, whether it was, you know, for cash purposes, you know, whatever that was. And I think seeing some of the icons willing to do it, it kind of made it okay for other artists to, to take away that taboo. And so, you know, for me, I just believe in artists having the freedom to, to make whatever choice they want. And usually, They don't own the catalog when they start their career because they sign bad publishing deals or they sign bad record deals. So they never had an opportunity to do it. So it's just good that they have the options to do it now and that they actually, you know, I'm seeing people make real money from it. Yeah, for sure. And also on the flip side, there's a bunch of private equity companies that are getting into it. Do you see them being able to monetize this in interesting ways moving forward or is there some sort of handicap for not knowing the music industry in and out as being like a wall street firm yeah a lot of what i'm seeing is the the really smart ones are actually hiring people to um to run the catalogs for them so so it's not just you know these assets that kind of sit there and like you know a bond or anything like that like uh, the smart ones actually are investing in um in these sort of uh, these vehicles that are going out buying catalogs and you have professionals from the music industry that are making the day-to-day choices. So, you know, we're seeing pension funds invest, you know, we, we're seeing, you know, we just saw the, the Cobalt deals um, that have happened recently where Cobalt sold um, a few of their catalogs that were set up as funds. So, um, you know, what, what I was a little bit afraid of was who's going to be making decisions around how these songs are placed and like, you know, what happens with these classic records. And, you know, so far we're seeing, you know, people like um, Hypnosis, who their CEO, uh, Merck, is incredible and he loves artists, loves songs. And um, and we're seeing companies like that that actually care and that actually have the experience. That's cool. They have somebody with like subject matter expertise running it. Can regular folks make money off that yet we're seeing we're seeing some things happen in the web three space and you know and it's been around in certain areas where people can invest in in songs and and catalogs you know from um these sort of uh uh group funded programs um i think i'd be careful like you know just as a as a consumer on the outside understanding having a clear understanding of how the economics work 
you know, it, it kind of scares me when I see some of the um, some of the launches where these are crowdfunded songs where people are receiving payments from investments. And I know how streaming pays out. So it's like that song has to get a lot of streams in order for these people to ever make money back, you know, from, from their investment. So, you know, and also, you know, I, I think it could get weird sometimes when fans have a financial vest, a financial interest in the artists, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, will artists be making decisions based off of their financial relationships with their fans versus, you know, um, their real relationships w- with their fans? That's really interesting. And as you know, any valuation is very subjective. Have you seen any of these catalogs being priced like way off the mark or has anything surprised you higher or lower? I think long term, the the multiple on catalogs are super cheap. Like, you know, even, the, you know, we're seeing some 18x multiples that people are like, oh, these people are overpaying. You know, I think in the big, big scheme of things, when we look at unique assets, um, you know, what's the value on, you know, purple rain, you know, and, and why would that value be any different from a Keith Haring painting or a Warhol painting? You know, when we think about unique assets and actually, you know, having ownership in those assets. And um, so I, I feel like music hasn't been positioned well in the unique asset category. And so I think um, I think a lot of these assets are are, are super cheap in a, in a big thing, uh, scheme of things. Well, are they all super cheap or like, you know, the democratization is very cool with a lot of NFTs and, and whatnot. But maybe just the great ones are super cheap. There's kind of like a handful full of the purple rains of the world. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm generalizing um, catalogs just, you know, across the board. But, you know, for every purple rain um, Prince might have in his catalog, Prince might have, let's call it 25 gems in his, in, in his catalog or um, Bob Dylan might have, you know, 25 gems, in, you know, in, in the catalog. One of those gems might be worth the price of what they sold Bob Dylan's entire catalog for, you know? So, so I think, um, you know, whether you want to separate them as unique assets, whether, whether you want it bundled, you know, I think overall that, you know, that the, the, uh, the value on it is, is, is incredibly cheap. And 18 times multiple is seems high. Where do you see it going or where would it be better priced? Well, if you look at where music assets were, 10, 15 years ago, you know, they, they were incredibly cheap. You know, like you look at Warner with uh, Lim Blavatnik bought it for, uh, I think 10 years ago, however long ago he bought it versus what it's worth today. Or you look at Universal's valuation 10 years ago and what it's worth today. Music has found so many other places to live and so many other places to monetize. And you look at how, um, China wasn't a, a monetizable market at one point, like in, in India wasn't a monetizable market for music at one point. And so now you look at, you know, these markets that are still nascent in terms of, you know, uh, making money, China, India, Africa, you look at their populations, you look at, you know, how mobile's growing in those spaces, how broadband's growing in those spaces. Um, and you look at the gaming category where music plays this very, very, very small role right now. Um, I just feel like it's, it's, it's value there that, that has yet to be unlocked. 
It's a really good point. I know we're so U.S.-focused all the time, U.S.-centric. Uh, you have also figured out ways to monetize, uh, sir. Let's talk about one of your other hats, angel investing. How did you get into this? I've been angel investing almost 12, about 12 years now. Um, but, you know, I got into it like really it was out of curiosity. Somebody offered me um, a chance to invest in a deal and um, and that sort of led to me and other founders. And I just started spending two to three days a week in Silicon Valley and meeting a ton of people, you know, around the world in the tech space. And it was helpful in terms of me understanding what the future was going to look like. And it allowed me to look at my own business of like, okay, how's our business going to be disrupted? What are the things we should be looking at? And so it kind of gave me a view into all of these different worlds. Yeah, it was probably beneficial uh, in in both spaces. What a great time to get into it. Can you explain for those who don't know what's the difference between angel investing and investing in a public company? Yeah, it's, you know, angel investing, you're, you're there... Um, as one of the earliest investors in the company. So, you know, sometimes it's, you know, uh, pre-market product fit. So you don't know whether the product's going to work. Sometimes it's before product has been actually built. So, you know, you're one of the early people that that's taken a chance and is, and at that point is very high risk. So, you know, you end up, you know, losing, um, you know, if you invest in a hundred companies, you know, chances are, you know, a, good portion of those companies are, are either going to fail or, or break even, or, you know, you get a low return and you're looking at, you know, high yield on a handful of companies. So it's, it's, it's very high risk and, un, and not really, and not as regulated um, and transparent sometimes, you know, as far as investor rights and things like that, as it would be with a publicly traded company. And it's, it's also illiquid. So, so you, when you invest, you, you go in understanding that if I do get a return, it's probably going to be, going to be on average seven to 10 years before there's a return. So, you know, is, is going to be illiquid versus a publicly traded company that's essentially a liquid asset, you know, when you want, when you want to sell. You're being modest, by the way. You're like, Oh, I put in a little investment. You had early investments in Uber and Lyft and Dropbox and Spotify and Orby Parker and some other biggies. So high risk, high reward. Yeah, you know, it's it's high high risk, high reward. When, you know, when, and and really understanding, um, going into it with, with with your eyes open, or even if your eyes aren't as open in terms of deep domain expertise on any one company or category, having enough um, trust in either who you're investing in. Their board members or co-investors who who are who are smart and might have done deals with the with, with that founder in the past, or they've done a deep lo- level of diligence that you're piggybacking. And I'm I'm assuming for every Uber and Spotify, you also invested in some ones we don't know. Oh yeah, it's like no, nobody ever talks about you know <laughs> the dogs in their portfolio, but um, but yeah, you know it, it's it's is it was very rare. I never invested in a company that I, I didn't believe in. And for even the companies that didn't make it, 99% of, of the founders, I would probably invest in again, you know, and just because they were high integrity, sometimes it's just timing on a, on, on a company. 
Sometimes, you know, it, it could be, you know, market conditions that they don't actually control. You know, it could be uh, the competitive environment. But um, it's, it's been very rare when I felt burnt by, by, by a founder. So, so most of the deals that I invested in is, are deals. The ones that I lost on are, are deals that I regret. Yeah, you didn't you didn't lose after all. Uh, how would somebody get into angel investing if they think this sounds pretty cool? I think it's um, you. It's so competitive in terms of um, of being able to put in direct capital. You know, just because when founders, if, if really good founders that want to raise money, like the deals that are actually worth investing in. Those deals usually aren't hard for founders to raise money around. Um, so, you know, for, for people who may not have that network, AngelList kind of serves as a, as a good place to, you know, sort of find deals to, to, to invest in. And then for people that actually can add value and like, and have, you know, whether it's, if, if you're the CMO of a Fortune 500 company, you know, you should be able to get access to, 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 to a certain level of deals, you know, as an angel investor, just by way of your, what your network will look like as being a CMO. So it's like, so it's finding those things that, um, finding ways where you can add unique value that then you could sell like a venture capital firm on to say, Hey, as you are investing in deals, if your founders need any marketing advice, I love to be a resource for them, at, you know, as a marketer. And I, you know, in exchange, I would love to be an angel investor in, in companies. And so I've seen a lot of people from, from outside of angel investing make their entry points by way of that type of strategy. Smart. And how does the financial model work for angel investing? Uh, I, I know it kind of, is wild west but uh but what are the check sizes typically what's the typical roi if there's typical at all yeah it's, it's no really I, I, it's hard roi is is all over the place and um check size varies as well you know what i my my rule of thumb was always you know don't put in any amount that that i'm going to lose sleep over at at night and that might vary for, for, for different people and you know so for me I didn't, you know, I was, I was investing primarily off of my balance sheet. So it's like, so if, you know, having, pro, you know, profit from the company, I can then invest that into, into other companies. And so, but being able to keep those two separate. So if it was a really good year, I can invest a lot. If it was a not so good year, then I could pull back. And if I lost everything on, the, um, on the angel investments, it wouldn't have direct impact on, on my primary business or my quality of life at home. So, you know, I, what I would say is strategy should be a portfolio strategy. So where you have, you know, not putting all your money in one company, you know, because th that's a very, very risky bet. Um, how can you take if you were going to invest? I'm just making this number up fifty thousand dollars. You know, could you put ten thousand dollars into five companies versus you know all all into one? So just figuring out how to mitigate that risk, or even put ten thousand maybe into five companies and the rest into index funds. Yeah, yeah, cool. Thank you so much, Troy. Uh, I hope to meet you IRL, not just yes, IRL one I, day. I, I'm a, I'm a fan, and congratulations on everything. Thank you. Back at you. 
For today's tip, you can take straight to the bank. As Troy reminds us, with companies that exist in fast-paced industries like music or tech, you should expect to see cycles of movement forwards and standing still, which feels like moving backwards on Wall Street. And that's why you should always look through a long-term lens, even if the company moves a mile a minute. Some companies that you invest in may be affected by a change in technology, and that's inevitable. But what you need to figure out as an investor is whether that company can adapt to those changes. That's a key quality in what separates the good investments from the bad. is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Our producers are Morgan Lavoie and Mike Coscarelli. Executive producers are Nikki Etor and Will Pearson. Our mascots are Penny and Mimsy. Huge thanks to OG Money Rehab team Michelle Lands for her development work, Catherine Law for her production and writing magic, and Brandon Dicker for his editing, engineering, and sound design. And as always, thanks to you for finally investing in yourself so that you can get it together and get it all. You spend my money.